Right, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 11. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, you'll find that on page 7. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Have you ever had a plan backfire on you? I can tell you a story about a time when I was in high school and there was a girl who liked me. It didn't happen a lot, but in this particular case. Um, and it's, it's all good. It all worked out great in the end. Um, but, but she was just aggressive and forward enough that she really turned me off. And uh, she'd make eyes at me when she'd, I'd walk past in the hallway. She'd come to my locker and talk to me. And um, she really wasn't my type, and I just sort of wanted her to leave me alone. Well, then um, our school had a morp. In case you don't know what that is, that's prom spelled backwards. It's when the girl asked the guy to be her date to the dance. And so she asked me, of course, and, um, and I didn't want to go, but I was too nice to hurt her feelings. So um, I thought about the fact that my parents had a rule that they didn't want me to date until I was 16. And I was only 15, and as much as I hated that rule, I figured this time it was my salvation. So... Um, I, I told her I'd have to ask my parents, and if they said yes, I'd go with her, but I wasn't sure that I'd be able to go. Well, I asked my mom, and wouldn't you know it, she said yes. <laughs> my plan had backfired, <laughs> and uh, I had to go to the dance with this girl, and it wasn't that bad. But um, um, plans can backfire on us, especially, I think, when love and romance are involved. Um, also especially when God is involved. And today's story in Genesis 11 is one of those times. It's the story, it's a story where the people's plans backfire in a major way. And in this case, it has to do with God being involved. Uh, we find this story in the book of Genesis several generations after Noah and his family have come out of the ark after the big flood. And all the people um, at that time are in some way related. They share the same culture. They speak the same language. And, and the whole world is, is before them. But it is not a tame, civilized world. Rather, it's an unconquered wilderness. And the people are looking for a place to settle down. They're looking for a place to call home. Well, they come upon a, a vast, fertile plain in what is now Iraq, and from a biblical perspective, this, idea, this uh, area is better known as Babylon. And the land is good, and so they settle down there. But because the area lacks um, abundant stones for building, it's not in the hills or the mountains, they develop a new technology. They make bricks out of clay, and they kiln fire them to make them hard and, and strong and durable. And, and then using tar, they stick these bricks together and build with them. And evidently, this technological innovation works out really well for them because they decide to build themselves a city with these bricks and a tower whose top reaches to the heavens. Why do they build the city and this tower? Well, um, they build it um, to make a name for themselves. They want to be significant. They want to, to matter. This is in verse 4. To, to leave a legacy that, that outlasts their lives. They also build it lest they be scattered over the earth. After all, it's a wilderness out there. 
And to be out on the frontier is to feel small and, and vulnerable. It's to face danger and possibly deprivation. It would be much safer and more comfortable to huddle together around a city. A city serves as a hub of, of society, a, a center of the action. It draws people. It gives them a sense of, of belonging, a, a sense of importance and power, a, a sense of sophistication and of, of safety and of protection. Now, there's no separation of church and state back at this time. So religion was, would have been right in the middle of, of the public life of this city. Um, so a central feature of this city would have been its temple and, and various religious buildings and structures related to that. And that's where this tower comes in. Most scholars believe this tower is a ziggurat. Um, a ziggurat is a religious structure. It isn't a temple, but rather it's a stairway for the God of the city to use to come down from heaven to be close to the people in their city, in their temple. Here's what's left of um, the Babylonian ziggurat of Ur. And here is probably what it looked like when it was in good repair. A ziggurat is basically a solid man-made mountain with a fancy stairway on the outside. And the only room in this, because it's solid, the only room is the one that you see on the top in blue. Uh, this small room at the top was furnished with a bed and, and with fresh food every day that the priests put there. And uh, the idea was that that way the God could refresh himself or herself along the way on his or her trip down from heaven to earth on this ziggurat. And this is most likely the kind of tower that the people build for their city to provide a way for their God to get down to the temple and to the city that they were building. By building a tower like this, the people in a way thought they were doing their God a favor. And in some way, they were securing their God's presence with them. Um, it was basically the, if we build it, our God will come approach. Um, and then they figured, we'll have our city and we'll be blessed by our God who will take up residence with us or at least visit us. We'll be safe and secure. We'll be powerful and prosperous. And together, we'll make a name for ourselves here. Which sure beats being poor and, and vulnerable pioneers out there somewhere in the vast, untamed wilderness. Um, can any of you relate to them? Uh, I mean, who, who prefers to live close to the city and civilization instead of far off in the wilds? A lot of us, I think. That's why we're, we're here. Um, well, unfortunately, their whole plan backfires. God, the true God, comes down to see what they're building. They think that they're building a mighty tower up to the heavens to aid their God so God can come down to them. But in actuality, this tower is so small, so puny, that from the true God's perspective, it's like God can't even see it from heaven. And so God has to come down with his magnifying glass, so to speak, to even see the thing. Let's come down and look at this thing they're building. And God is not impressed with their accomplishment. In fact, God is concerned. The Lord says, verse 6, If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Now, I don't think that God is feeling threatened here. I, I don't think it's like as, as if God is their rival and wants to keep them under his thumb. 
and that they're getting too uppity and that's why God is, is going to thwart their efforts. No, I think it, it's rather that God cares for them. And God realizes that they are on the wrong track. And if they continue down this road they're on, they're going to get much further off track. And so God decides to save them from themselves. God changes their course. God foils their efforts. God causes their plans to backfire. Verse 7, God says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. Somehow, we don't know how God did this. We don't know how long it took. But somehow God confused the common language that they all had and they were no longer able to understand each other. And as a result, the very thing they were trying to avoid actually happened to them. They became scattered all over the earth. Unable any longer to communicate and to cooperate, they, they abandoned their plans and their projects and, and they spread out people by people, language group by language group, all over the earth. So that's the story of the Tower of Babel. Or I think we could just as well call it the tower that backfired. The people were trying to avoid having to spread out and face the uncertainty and the difficulty, the insecurity of life at the margins, and yet this is the very thing that they wind up facing. So what's the point of this story? Why has it been preserved for us in God's word? Is it a warning not to build tall towers, not to build skyscrapers? Uh, is it an explanation to satisfy our curiosity of, about why there are all these languages and cultures in the world? I, I don't think so. Rather, I think this story is giving us a different perspective, a different set of glasses, you could say, through which to view the world. A set of lenses to help us avoid having our plans backfire on us. And when I say our plans, I'm not talking about our um, day-to-day in individual personal plans, but rather th th this is a big picture story. It's set on the world stage. It has to do with big issues of human existence, with matters like international relations and world events and the economy and immigration policy and human progress. Bible interpreters have often recognized this. You read commentaries on this passage and invariably they recognize on, on big, or sorry, they, they reflect on, on big issues like the United Nations and the space program. Um, and so the big question that this passage raises is when it comes to national and world events, how do we as humankind conduct our affairs in such a way that our efforts don't ultimately backfire on us? Because this passage makes it clear that there's a God in the heavens. A God who has sovereign power over all. A God so mighty and exalted that our greatest human achievements are so small in comparison that it's as if God has to come way down to even see them. A God who ultimately controls the destiny of nations, causing them to rise and to fall as God sees fit. And so if we do not take this God into account, we could be building only to have God tear it down. We could be gathering only to have God scatter. Our best efforts could wind up backfiring on us. So what can we learn from this passage about how to view the big issues and matters of life in light of the God who's in the heavens? 
Well, let's remember what these people are facing. They're facing uh, a great untamed wilderness out there. They feel small, insecure, overwhelmed. They have a desire to, to have a name for themselves, to, to matter, to be significant, to endure, and also to be safe and secure. And, and I don't think we should blame them because we experience all these same feelings, right? This is just, this is the human experience. Um, and I don't think God faults them for feeling this way. But, but the question is, what are they, what are we to do about it? And Genesis gives us two major options of, of how we can respond, how we can conduct our affairs on earth in light of these longings. The first is the Babel approach. Now, to understand this, what this approach represents, let's not forget where this city and tower are located and what they wind up being named. Babel, which is short for Babylon. Babylon, of course, becomes the archenemy of God's people later in the story. Babylon is the, is the prototypical great empire, mighty and, and exalted. Babylon is powerful. Babylon is arrogant. Babylon is oppressive. Babylon is also the great seat of, of pagan religion. Babylon becomes famous later for its great temples and for its ziggurats. We just saw the remains of one of them. You know, the name Babylon itself means the gate of the gods. The gate of the gods. The Babylonians viewed themselves as, as favored by the gods, as, as God's country, as God's special people. Surely the gods had blessed them. I mean, look how powerful and how rich and how exalted they had become. And yet our passage in verse 9 gives us another suggestion about what Babylon really means, what it really is, just pure babble, mixed up and confused. Now, historically speaking, of course, the great empire of, of Babylon came into existence long after the events that are recorded in our story this morning. But this passage it is like a, a sneak peek of what Babylon would later become. It, it's describing a first aborted attempt at Babylon. And, and it means, it's meant to, to symbolize every Babylon ever since. Every great city and empire which musters its own strength to, to make a name for itself, to provide for its own security, to become for itself a favored place of the gods. So Babel, that's one approach to our human longing for security and for protection for a name that's significant and endures. But there's a second approach. And if we keep reading the book of Genesis, what comes next? Well, immediately after the story of Babel, we're introduced to a couple named Abraham and Sarah. And in many ways, their life, their experience are the complete antithesis of Babel. Abraham and Sarah leave Ur of the Chaldees, which is the area of Babel. They leave the security of their home city because God calls them out to wander in the wilderness. They experience being scattered. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that Abraham had no city of his own. But he wandered as a stranger in a foreign country living in tents. For Hebrews tells us, Abraham was looking to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. 
Can you see how Abraham's earthly life couldn't have been more unlike the Tower of Babel? Babel represents the center, but God calls Abraham and Sarah to the margins. And yet here's the irony. The people who built the Tower of Babel or what the people who built the Tower of Babel, what they were longing for there, they don't wind up getting. But Abraham and Sarah, who give all that up, do wind up getting what the people of the Tower of Babel were trying to get. God gives Abraham a name. Genesis 12, 2. God tells Abraham, I will make your name great. And God gives Abraham and Sarah safety and security, providing and protecting for them. Genesis 15, 1. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. So as we consider how to proceed, how to go about the big issues of world affairs, how to make a name for ourselves or have a name for ourselves, how to find security, God here in the opening chapters of Genesis, is laying before us two options. Babel, Babylon, or Abraham and Sarah. Babylon, the center of sophistication and, and power, man-made security and might, or Abraham and Sarah, living at the margins as immigrants, wanderers, country bumpkins, scattered to far-off, out-of-the-way places where they learn to trust and follow God. The book of Genesis is, is giving us a set of lenses to help us see which of these ways is the way for humankind to conduct its affairs. Are you with me? All right, well, let's get more practical then and uh, put, use these lenses to, to look at some of the practical issues in human existence that this story raises, like technology and urbanization and culture and language and nationalism and empire and religion. So all in the next 15 minutes or your money back. <laughs> so first, technology. We're just going to skate the surface. <laughs> technology in and of itself is, of course, neutral. Uh, Abraham lived by old technology. He dwelled, dwelt in tents. The people of Babel developed uh, the innovation of kiln-fired bricks. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with a brick. But here's where it gets tricky about technology. Each new technological innovation opens up new possibilities for humankind. And the critical question is, what does a society do with these possibilities? Do we, for example, use nuclear technology to power our homes or to obliterate our enemies? Do we use the Internet to keep in touch with loved ones or to pretend we're someone that we're not? I'd say that the predominant view toward technology today is that if it's new and it's powerful or it's cool and it's gadgety, then, um, then it's got to be good. And so let's adopt it as quickly as possible. But the Tower of Babel reminds us that new technologies often have un unintended consequences that can easily backfire on us. And that we would be wise as a society to collectively slow down and more carefully think through where new technologies are leading us and how they affect our ability to trust God. Second, 
urbanization. Cities, like technology, are not bad in themselves. Jerusalem, after all, was a city that later received God's favor. Uh, the book of Revelation tells us that God will be present with us for eternity in a new Jerusalem. Sure, the city of Babel turned out badly, and some city haters like to argue that the people of Babel were disobeying God when they built a city. Um, after all, God had told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, and instead they huddled together around a city. But I think it's reading too much into the text to suggest that building a city in and of itself was wrong. God does tell them to fill the earth, but that mostly has to do with being fruitful and, and reproducing. God never commands the people to scatter or to spread out, if you read the text carefully. And, and so maybe God doesn't, after the Tower of Babel, scatter them just because they built a city. Maybe God scatters them because of when, what went on in that city. Are you following me, the distinction? Because while cities in themselves are neutral, truth be told, cities have a strong tendency to head down the wrong road. Look at the city of Babel and how it backfires. And so when God begins implementing God's plan to save the world through Abraham and Sarah, God calls them away from the city, away from the center, out to the margins. And when Abraham's nephew Lot, a little later in the story, returns to city life, it causes nothing but problems. The truth is that cities, whether they be Babel or later Babylon or Rome or New York City, cities have a tendency to become self-sufficient, self-satisfied, arrogant, and oppressive. That arrogance shows up in disdainful phrases you hear today in our area like flyover country. Right? We East Coast urbanites who need to fly to the West Coast on business or to, to uh, visit family, we use that phrase to, to describe the heartland of America. And yet very often it's from flyover country that God finds those he can use to do his best work. This is true of Abraham and Sarah. They were from flyover country. Their progeny, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all country folk who smelled like sheep. <laughs> King David, too, began as a small-town shepherd boy. John the Baptist was a wilderness prophet. And, of course, Jesus... ...go to the margins to find people who aren't so self-satisfied and so self-reliant and successful and comfortable and secure that they're of little use to God. Third, language and culture. A single unified language and culture is a political and economic dream. This, uh, or think how easy it makes communication and cooperation. You don't have to deal with accents and translations and misunderstandings and strange foods and holidays and customs. A common culture and language facilitates trade and, and business dealings. It simplifies the, the legal system and political systems. Just think about the problems Britain is having with Sharia law or, or the ethnic tensions in American and European cities. There are good reasons that the English-only movement has such strong support. 
And a common language and culture was what allowed Babel to grow strong and successful. But of course, that backfired, didn't it? God came down and confused their languages. Now, why? Why, why did God do it? Was it a punishment? Would it have been better for us all to speak one language? But God was disciplining Babel, and, and so we're now we're all stuck with all this diversity that's so inconvenient. Or was the confusion of languages at Babel God's positive correction to a bad scenario? Did God recognize that one people united by one language was going to get themselves into more and more trouble? And so God blessed humankind with a kaleidoscope of diversity. To put the question another way, what will heaven be like one day when things are perfect? Will everyone speak English? <laughs> or Hebrew? <laughs> or will all the tribes and nations and cultures and languages of the earth be forever like a kaleidoscope reflecting the diverse artistry of our creator? Well, it's no mystery. If you read the book of Revelation, it's clear that the second is the correct picture. God evidently delights in our diversity. But the babbles of the earth, the empires, continue to fight this diversity. They, time and again, have a habit of imposing their dominant culture and language on every other smaller culture. The center has a habit of trying to take over the margins. The Greeks did it to the Jews and to other conquered peoples. The Romans, even under Christendom, did it to their subject peoples. The English did it to the Irish. And do you know, when our family uh, earlier this summer visited Plymouth Plantation, we learned that in Massachusetts, there's still a law on the books dating back to pilgrim days, outlawing the speaking of Native American languages. Which is ironic because the word Massachusetts is a native word, and so technically it's illegal. <laughs> uh, of course, Americans today would never disrespect the cultural language of any minority group, right? But the picture Revelation gives us is one of every tribe and nation worshiping God in their own tongue. And if this is God's best, if this is our destiny, when Christ's kingdom is fully here, then shouldn't we begin to embrace diverse cultures and languages now if we're people of the kingdom, which is coming? This leads forth to nationalism and empire. Babel was the seed of the first empire. Later, it came back full grown in the empire of Babylon. And many other empires, of course, have followed, each glorifying themselves, justifying themselves, even while trampling on those at the margins. In the old days, it took military might to subjugate people. Today, in the world economy, the powerful nations of the world can exploit weaker peoples economically and culturally without very often having to field an army. We do it by controlling the economic rules of the game. We do it by exporting our culture through a powerful system of entertainment and merchandising. The Greeks and Romans called this civilizing the barbarians. The Europeans called it Christianizing the heathens. And what do we call it today? Spreading the blessings of capitalism and democracy? 
But how do we distinguish when it really is the blessings of democracy, which certainly is a blessing, and when it is just the long shadow of Babel? It's worth taking time to be circumspect about when we at the center are, are deceiving ourselves, thinking we're doing God a favor, when in fact God is not with us at the center, but is at work quietly working at the margins instead. Fifth, finally, religion. The religion of Babel aimed to take control of God. Long before the Russian cosmonauts bragged that they were going to fly to the heavens and see if God was there, the people of Babel were seeking to build to the heavens to help God come down, providing a nice stairway and rest and refreshment for the trip as if God needed the help, as if making a nice stairway would ensure that God's presence would be with them. And that's what most religion does. It seeks to control God. It seeks to get God to comply with our terms, to, to offer God the hand we think God needs in exchange or in hopes that God will be obligated to turn around and bless us. That's what's wrong with the common idea that there are many ways to God. As if each religion is just a different path up the mountain and they all lead to God at the top. The thing is that that idea assumes that, that we are the ones who make the paths up to God and that we're capable of getting to the top of the mountain where we think God is. But Babel tells a far different story. In our text, God says, I am so high, I am so far exalted and removed that your efforts to reach me are, are so puny that it's like I can't even see them. I have to come all the way down even to get a look. You can't get up to me. And so at Babel, God condemns all human religious efforts to reach God. The Babylonians called themselves the gateway to the gods. But God called it just mixed up confusion. God refused and rejected the Babel man-made approach to religion. And instead... According to Genesis, God came all the way down. And God passed by the center, and God moved to the margin, where God chose one family to work with and through, Abraham and Sarah. You can read about it beginning in Genesis 12. God initiated a relationship with them. God initiated it before they'd done anything to deserve it. And God said, I will be your God and I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will be your shield and your very great reward. And through you, I will bless all the peoples who are now scattered over the earth. And so instead of a big city with top technology, instead of an impressive religious structure, God began working with one lone family out in the sheep pastures teaching them God's nature, God's character, teaching them to trust in God. And saying, the way to me has to be determined by me. And this is how I choose to do it. And if you want to know me and find me, this is the way it has to happen. 
for you, for your children, and for all who later will put their faith in me like you, Abraham, and Sarah have done. So, the story of Babel gives us a different set of lenses to put on. And man, when you wear these glasses, everything looks very different, doesn't it? And so, as you go out today into the city, as you go out tomorrow, I encourage you to keep these glasses on. And as you see all the big, impressive plans the world has, and you're tempted to get all caught up in them, just ask yourself, it looks good now, but how likely are these plans eventually to backfire? Let's pray. God, this is a very humbling text. As you call to account all the things we so often take for granted as worthy of our hope and admiration and trust and pursuit. And God, we confess as the church in the Western world, we have taken what you began at the margins and we have made it the center. And in the process, we have made ourselves the center of all things and assumed that you would bless it. I pray that you'd return us to a place of the margins, to the place of Abraham and Sarah. And even if we're called for various reasons to work and minister in the center like Joseph and Daniel and Isaiah were over the years, give us the heart of the margins, the heart of small things, the heart of the greatest wisdom and power and blessing being hidden in what seems insignificant and small to the world. Give us the heart of Jesus who conquered all by giving his life, by dying, by surrendering on a cross. Teach us to follow in that way, that we can truly know you and be a blessing to others. Amen.